All right, let's pray together. We've got a great sermon series in store of you. In fact, this is a big one because in many ways, this is bringing to closure uh, this series on the Old Testament today. And I'll talk a little, bit about, a little bit about that in a second. So let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, please be with us now. We're so thrilled about the way that you've already led us in this service. Uh, we are particularly thrilled today about Annika's baptism. And we are just so excited that a young lady of 17 years old, beautiful on the outside, beautiful on the inside, is making a decision to follow you. She wants to put you first. And Father, when she was reading there Romans 8, 28, it just dawned on me how important it is that our young people are in the text of Scripture. And Father, I pray that this would be the case not just for Annika, but for every teen in this church, my own sons included, that there would be a revival and a passion for Scripture and for the God of Scripture. And so please, Father, now as we turn our attention, young and old alike, to Scripture, may you open our minds is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Well, believe it or not, uh, does anybody take a guess what number sermon this is today in our traversing of the Old Testament? We're in a series called A Blazing Grace. Does anybody have a guess what number today is? 52. You guess 64, Blair? 52, which is amazing because there are 52 weeks in a year. And uh, when we sat down and, and sort of calculated, when I sat down and calculated how we could move through the Old Testament, I said, man, it's going to be a real stretch, but we might be able to do it in a year, in 52 Sabbaths. And as things have turned out, today is exactly the 52nd sermon in this series. Now, we've had other sermons in the interim, and uh, it's been a great year, but today, in many ways, we're going to be bringing this particular series to a close, but not really, and that's what I want to spend just a little bit of time explaining. So we have traversed through the Old Testament in seven chapters, is what Pastor Jared and I have referred to them as, uh, beginning with the beginning, followed by family, the family of Abraham, of course, then Exodus, land, kings, and exile. Today will be the final sermon on exile, which is the sixth of the seven chapters that you see up there. But the last chapter, of course, is Messiah. And what's going to happen with this is that we're going to take a little bit of a break over big camp, and my wife and I will be traveling to Europe in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and resuming in early to mid-May, we will begin our second series, which will last for basically the rest of this year. And that will be a series on the seventh chapter of uh, the Ablazing Grace series, and that's a, a series on Messiah. It's going to have its own title. It's going to have its own chapters. I'm not ready to reveal that yet, though we've, we've got it mostly sorted. Um, but what today represents, today will be in the last book of the Old Testament. Does anybody know what book that is? Book of Malachi. Today will be in the book of Malachi. And uh, it is going to be sort of a sweeping perspective on much of what we have learned in the entirety of our series. And so in a way, today is an end. It brings closure to a part of the series but as we're going to see, as the text of Malachi itself does, it actually anticipates and um, prepares us for something that's coming. And that something is not a something, it's a someone, and that is Jesus. So turn with me, if you would, to Malachi. Uh, that's the last book of the Old Testament. If you get to the book of Matthew, you just need to go back a single book. So it might be easiest just to find the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and go back one book. And you'll be in the book of Malachi. Now, I should say between now and the beginning of the next series, which will happen, as I've said, sometime in early to mid-May, uh, we've got a number of really exciting sermons that are going to be coming along. One of them is going to be preached by, what, what did you call Blair? The biggest, strongest man? Was that what your name for him? 
Oh, Mr. Muscleman, that's right. So Mr. Muscleman is going to preach a sermon, uh, no doubt on what, Samson or something maybe, or something that requires muscle. Um, we've got some great sermons coming up, but it's, they're not going to be part of a series as such. They'll just be sort of one-offs until we're prepared after big camp and after my wife and I's return from Europe for a giant series uh, that's going to last most of the rest of the year, if not extending even into next year, on Messiah. And so we're in the book of Malachi, and this week when I was preparing, actually over the last two weeks, because I've known for a little while that I would be preaching on this, I, I sort of had a title in mind, and I'd already begun to work on the sermon, oh, probably going back two weeks now. Uh, but like the sermon on Daniel that I preached a few weeks ago, this sermon went a little different direction than I thought it would. And the original title that I had, The Dream Has Died, But a Resurrection Is Coming. And there will be elements of that, but as I sat down this week and actually started to put the sermon together, I came up with a little better title and a title that better reflects what I think the book of Malachi is actually driving at. And our sermon title today, therefore, is... Uh, where there's a will, he is the way. Where there's a will, he is the way. And uh, let's start by orienting ourselves. For those of you that are longtime attendees or you've been with us through the whole series, you'll be very familiar with where we are. We're right down here toward the latter part of the exile. The, the Babylonians have taken Judah into captivity. The Assyrians, uh, a century before, have assimilated, um, or Israel has assimilated into Assyria. And so we are left in a very precarious situation where God's clearly, clearly, God's original intent for Israel has not been achieved. Uh, not even close. God never intended, for example, for there to be uh, a splitting between Israel and Judah. Uh, God certainly never intended a captivity. But remarkably, even though God did not intend a captivity, you can go back all the way more than a thousand years to the writings of Moses, passages like Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 30, in which Moses says, when you go into the land and you're carried away by the idolatry of the people and you go into captivity, I will gather you again from your captivity. Now, I just want that to settle into your mind here. When we think about the prophecies of Scripture, many of us uh, instinctively or intuitively think about the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, the great predictive apocalyptic prophecies of the metal man whose head was of gold and chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, etc., But the whole of Scripture is built on a prophetic narrative. All the way back in the time of Moses, God said to and through Moses, the children, my people, the children of Israel will go into the land of Canaan. They will become enticed and tempted by the idolatry of the surrounding nations. They will then lose my protective hedge. They will be carried away by some of those nations. And then I will call them as a remnant out. Now again... Just let the significance of that settle into your mind. This is more than a thousand years in advance of the very things that came to pass exactly as Moses had anticipated. So we can go back to passages in Moses in which we find God saying, look, you will be carried away into captivity. Not only will there be an exodus from Egypt, but there will be an exile from the land, the land flowing with milk and honey that I had promised to you. Well, that took place in The Babylonian exile, Judah here, uh, the second uh, bullet point there, Judah was in Babylonian exile from uh, 600 B.C. to 538 B.C. More than a century before, as we've mentioned, Israel was scattered by Assyrian um, uh, hostility. And now, as Jared preached about last week, he talked to us about Nehemiah and Ezra and Cyrus, outstanding sermon for such a time as this. And I just want to affirm, Jared, in the strongest language, I loved last week's sermon. I loved that emphasis on how every one of us is in what he called a unique and strategic position in life. Can the church say amen to that? 
How true is that? Man, I loved that point. And Jerry, you might remember, told that little story about how he went out knocking on doors with a, a particular lady from another country who didn't speak the language of the country that he was knocking on the doors on. And he thought, man, this is not going to work out. How is this lady ever going to be able to speak to these people? Her, her voice isn't as good. Her language isn't as good, etc. And sure enough, they run into people from her own country. And God works just like that. Every one of us is placed in a unique and strategic situation right now, right here, in this time and in this place. And I loved Pastor Jared's emphasis on for such a time as this. It was not only true of Esther, it was not only true of Zerubbabel, it was not only true of Nehemiah, and it's not only true of Malachi, it's true of every one of us. And so the first wave of those captives, they were under Babylonian captivity, they began to go back, right? When, when the Persian king began to, hey, go, go back, rebuild, we, we don't need you here, go back and rebuild your own city, rebuild the walls, and reestablish your national identity. That took place under Zerubbabel in 536. The temple was rebuilt in very rapid, uh, in, in, in quick order. It took uh, very, very much less time than they thought it would. Of course, the temple, as Jared mentioned, was considerably smaller than the Solomonic temple. In fact, it was so much smaller that many of the Jews wept when they saw the size of the foundation stones that were laid out. A second wave of Jews begin to return, this time under Ezra. And though the temple had already been built, there was widespread instruction that needed to take place because people had forgotten the law of God. And Ezra, we see this in the latter part of his book, as the, as the second wave goes through in about 458 BC, there's this widespread priestly instruction. Hey, this is how we operate in the temple. This is how the temple works. And then finally, a third wave under Nehemiah in about 444 BC. These are the three waves of of Jews that began, both from Judah and Israel, I might add, that began to go back and repopulate and repatriate their homeland and their home city and their home temple. This is what's referred to as the post-exilic period, and that's just, that word just means exactly what it sounds like, after the exile. The post-exilic period, when Jesus arrives on the scene, you know, we're just one page here away from the book of Matthew. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he arrives in post-exilic Israel. He arrives in what scholars call Second Temple Judaism. The first temple, the Solomonic Temple, had been destroyed. The second temple has been built now, and this is Second Temple Judaism in the post-exilic period. And that is when Jesus shows up. We're going to talk extensively about that when we commence with our new series in May. So this orients us as to where we are. Now, just a brief quotation here that we'll return to right at the end of the presentation from Christopher J.H. Wright in his marvelous book, which I recommend, titled Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. This is what he says. Throughout, the period, throughout this period, Judah had no independence, of course. It formed just a small sub-province of the vast Persian Empire, which stretched, from, uh, the Aege- which stretched from the shore of the Aegean Sea to the borders of India and lasted for two centuries. It was a huge empire. Continuing, in the fifth century, it appeared that delusionment and depression set in again. This is against the backdrop of Malachi, partly as a result of the apparent failure of the hopes raised by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And this led to a growing laxity in religious and moral life. Haggai and Zechariah were passionate. Some of the most powerful books in the the Old Testament, particularly Zechariah, all of this pregnant imagery, the temple will be built and great things will happen. And people were really buoyed under the strength of the prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. But now, but now, 20, 30, 40 years later, it's as if things have begun to return sort of to normalcy and, and disillusionment and even a kind of depression begin to set in. This was challenged by the last of the Old Testament prophets, 
none other than Malachi. In the 5th century, he was concerned about the slovenliness of the sacrifices, the spread of divorce, and the widespread failure of the people to honor God in their practical lives. And that's where we pick up today. When we come to the end of the Old Testament, when we finally get to Malachi, the last, not only uh, in, t- in terms of the, the organization of the Old Testament, but chronologically, the last of the Old Testament prophets, coming right in the middle uh, of the 5th century B.C., some more than 1,000 years after the time of Moses. When we arrive here, you get a sense, and I've read through the book of Malachi several times in preparation for this sermon, and, and the way that I would summarize it is simply like this. You, you get to the end of the Old Testament, and it ends in a kind of what you might call a mutual exasperation. The book of Malachi follows a very interesting pattern, a pattern that is unique in all of the prophetic writings. It follows this, this dialogue of, of utter incredulity on both God's side and the people of Israel's side. And I want to show you that today. It's like, it's like we've all had the experience of sitting down with a close friend and, and you're so close and you're so connected and you've known each other for so long that you can virtually finish one another's sentences. That, that beautiful connectivity that can take place in a close relationship. But most of us in this room have also had the opposite experience where you sit down with somebody and you're not really connecting. You're saying something and, and you're talking past them and they're talking past you and you, you're just like ships in the night. There's just no connection. There, there's just, you're not on the same place or on the same plane. And that's how the book of Malachi reads. The structure or the spine, if you will, of the book of Malachi is built around nine or ten, depending on how you divide them, of these little cameos, these little dialogue cameos in which God says something and then the people respond with incredulity and then God responds with incredulity. I want to show you some of that. Look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 1. We're introduced to the first one right out of the gate. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi... I have loved you, says the Lord. And I just want to pause and say something about that. Notice that the opening line from God at the closure of an exasperated millennium of the Old Testament is God says in the most emphatic and unmistakable of language, I have loved you. Can the church say amen? Even now God is saying, after all of that, After all that we've been through, after all of the drama, after all of the idolatry, after all of the apostasy, after all of that, as the the Old Testament draws to a close, the first thing that Malachi records God is saying is, I have loved you. And I want to tell you something today, church. There will never, ever, ever come a time in your life where God could not say of you, both in the present and in the past, I love you love you. You, I love this idea. This is not what we would expect. We wouldn't expect for God just to come out firing with love. He says, I have loved you. But here is the first of these nine or ten little cameos of, of talking past one another, these little dialogues in which clearly a connection is not being made. Notice the response of the people, yet you say, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now notice this, God opens with, I have loved you, and the response of the people becomes a major thematic element in the book of Malachi, yet you say, God is going to say something, and regularly Malachi will introduce the response of God's apathetic, incredulous, disillusioned people with this phrase, but you say, yet you say, God says, I've loved you. 
There's an energy, there's a positivity, there's almost, dare I say it, a kind of optimism here, which is remarkable to think that you could have anything approaching optimism after what Israel has been through over the last, you know, more than a millennium, and yet God's response in the most emphatic language, he initiates this last book of the Old Testament with, I have loved you, and the response of the people is not, really? Even now, their heart does not begin to be warmed and melted and softened and made pliable by God's love. No, their response is, yet you say, look at their response, in what way have you loved us? This pattern will follow again and again in the book of Malachi. Come with me to stay in chapter 1, look at verse 6. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I then am your father, where is my honor? Some translations, where is my reverence? Jump down to the bottom part of verse 6. Yet you say. God says, where is my honor? Where is my reverence? I am your father, I am your master, I am your king. Where is my honor? God asks in sincerity. And And then he says, but you say. This is the response of God's incredulous, apathetic, and disillusioned people. In what way have we despised your name? Surely you're not accusing us of having dishonored or disregarded you. In what way? There's almost a kind of caustic accusation in this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Make your case, old man. How have we dishonored you? How have you loved us? Clearly, there is not a connectivity. There's not a mutuality or a synergy here between God and his people. They are talking right past one another. You get this sense of, as I've said, ex- exasperation. God is pouring his heart out. I have loved you, but, but, but where is my honor? How have you loved us? How have we dishonored and despised your name? Verse 7. Well, you offer defiled food on my altar. Here it is. You offer defiled food on my altar. And here it is. But you say... You, you ask for a for instance. Well, 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 here's one instance. You've defiled my altar with these lame and imperfect sacrifices. But you say, now notice the response of the people. Not humility, not repentance, not a, a sense of self-examination. You know what? We've got to take that one on the chin, God. We have brought you substandard, subpar offerings. No, notice the response. In what way have we defiled you? Notice the, in, the, the implicit accusation. In what way? Make your case, God. It continues on here. Notice the next one. Oh, this one. You shall also say. Look at this. Jumping down to verse 13 of the same chapter, chapter 1. You will say, oh, what a weariness. In context, what a weariness it is to have you as our God and to serve you in this way. Oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it. Clearly, these are two people not on the same plane, not in the same place. They are ships in the night. God had longed to be able to say for centuries and centuries before the thing that he had said of Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here we get the sense, and you're going to see this more in just a moment. God is extending his hand, his divine hand of optimism and love and hope and certainly rebuke and judgment, but the love and optimism and hope and belief is there. And yet the response of the people is, give me a break. In what way have you loved us? In what way have we defiled your name? Oh, what a weariness. And God says, you sneer when my name and my service and my worship is mentioned. Come with me to chapter 2. Chapter 2 of verse 13. 
Chapter 2, verse 13 says, And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so that He does not regard the offering anymore, nor will He receive this goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, God says, I can't regard this offering anymore. It's not sincere. It's not genuine. I know you're just going through the motions of religiosity. I cannot accept this anymore. In fact, right in the book of Malachi, he goes so far as to say, it would be better to shut the temple and to put the priests out of business that continue to insult me with this parody, with this charade of religiosity. I'm not accepting those offerings anymore. And notice the response of the people. Here it is again. But you say, but you say, check this out. For what reason? Here again, notice the implicit accusation against God. God, you're acting irrational. You're acting untruthfully. You're acting sillily and ridiculously. For what reason? There's no good reason for you to act in this way toward us, God. The book of Malachi is unique in its structure, and we're seeing this here. Unlike the other prophets, it's, it's definitely built around the spine or the backbone of this ships-in-the-night dialogue in which God says something with pathos, with energy, even with optimism, and the response of the people is utter incredulity, apathy, and disillusionment. And, and, and an accusative element is in all of it. For what reason? Go to chapter, stay in chapter 2, look at verse 17. You have wearied me with your words, it says in verse 17. Here it is again. Yet you say, Oh, your words and your tears, they're insincere. I know it and you know it. You have wearied me with your words, but you say, In what way have we wearied you? All of the same elements that I've already mentioned are there. The accusative element is there. The incredulity is there. The ships in the night element are there. The not connecting element are there. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says Jehovah. Here's the next, impl- the, the next imploring from God. Return to me and, and, and I'll return to you. It'll be great. I have loved you. Return to me and and I will return to you. But you say, not a softening, not a melting, not, not not a winning of the heart by God's ongoing openness and willingness to receive them even at this late hour. But you say, watch this, you say, in what way shall we return to you? The implication here is, what do you mean return? We're already here. We are your people. Remember going back to that statement there from Christopher Wright where he said a sort of laxity and a laziness had settled into the people. What do you mean return to you? We just built the temple. We are your people. We're the Jews. We're the descendants of Abraham. We've come out of Babylon and in some cases Assyria. Return to you in what sense? God's like, no, no, it's not geography. It's not, it's not architecture. Return to me with your heart. I love you. In what way have you loved us? Staying in chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet yet you have robbed me? Here's the next one. You you have taken that which is rightfully mine. It doesn't belong to you. You have robbed me. You know what's coming here. But you say, your response when I let you know, hey, you've robbed me. Your response is, in what way have we robbed you? All of the same elements contained here again. Accusative, incredulous, apathetic, disillusioned. It's, it's like too, this is not God in a position where he could say truthfully and honestly, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I'm just going to say something very briefly here because it's very hard to preach this without 
without talking about the New Testament because Malachi is this, is this synaptic bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The scholars recognize this, that, that, that in a very significant way, this page right here is, is the only uninspired page in your Bible. This is the most useless page in your Bible. I don't have the courage to tear it out, so I just fold it. It's the one that says the New Testament. It's the only, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, this is the only uninspired page in, in your Bible. It's in your Bible, I guarantee it. So I, I, I can't bring myself to tear it out because I just like this Bible too much. So I just fold it so I don't have to look at that uninspired page. It doesn't belong there. It suggests a division. It suggests a split or a demarcation. There is no such thing. Malachi is this synaptic bridge between the old and the new, and, and, and God here is saying, I, I long, I, I, I want to be represented by you, and it's going to become so significant. We'll pick this up come May. It's, there's going to be so much pregnancy when Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, and watch this, God can then say, ah, this is my son, an Israelite in whom I am pleased. God can say in a very similar way to the way that he had said it about Abraham a millennium before, or more than a millennium before, he could say about Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. Malachi anticipates the New Testament. It longs for the New Testament. It's like somebody coming up to a piano and playing, you know, an ascending series of chords. And then not bringing finish, not bringing closure or finality, and it just stops. Malachi demands, it requires, it necessitates Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to get there in May. God here is saying, you've robbed me. How have we robbed you? God longs to be able to say, I am their God, and this is my people. But he can't. His people treat his overtures with scorn. His people treat his, his entreaties with, with incredulity and apathy. In what way have we robbed you? And I, this one is particularly tender. Notice it here in chapter 3. Um, uh, notice is it chapter 3. Oh, this, this one is very tender. Verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me. How many wives in here have said this about their husbands? My, I know my wife has said it about me. I'll come back to the wives and husbands thing in just a moment. Your, your, your words have been harsh. That almost sounds like kind of a sissy thing to say. Like, hey, man up. Take it like a man. No, God, God is tender. God is emotional. God hurts when we hurt him. God says, but, but, but you, you've hurt me. Your, your words have hurt me. Your words have been harsh against me. And notice their response. You know what's coming. But you say, you say, this is your response when I tell you that when God puts his emotions out there, when he puts his soul out there, what have we said against you? That's exactly what I said as a husband. When was, when was I ever harsh to you? She could have said, well, like right now. The spine of Malachi are these interactions, these nine or ten, depending on how you divide them, interactions, where God says something in the response of the people, yet you say, yet you say, yet you say. There's no connectivity. There's no mutuality here. There's no friendship. There's no connection. This is the people going through the motions, but God won't settle for that. I want to say, there are people in this church that might be perfectly settled and happy to go through the motions of religiosity, but God will never be happy with such a farce. God cannot... God cannot take pleasure in a form or a show or a charade of godliness. 
When it comes right down to the end of the Old Testament, God's like, no, no, this isn't what I hoped for. This isn't what I planned. And yet the people in their self-satisfied religion are like, but we're already your people. What do you mean return to you? What do you mean we've wearied you with your words? What do you mean we've robbed you? Surely not. We're not pagans. We're not heathen. And sure enough, when we come some 400 years later through the intertestamental period, which we'll pick up in May, you find this, this emergence of a group of people that we know very commonly in the New Testament as the Pharisees. And they are a self-satisfied, insular, isolated group of people who are absolutely certain that in some significant way they are God's favored people and everybody else isn't. We see the, the embryo, we see the, 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 the beginnings of that line of thinking right here in the book of Malachi. A self-satisfied, we are fine and what do you want about God uh, is, is all over the book of Malachi. What have we said against you? And God says, well, I'll tell you one thing you said that really hurt my feelings. It really hurt me deeply when you said it's useless to serve God. Now, I'm just going to put God's words here in order. Now, you just tell me what picture emerges here. Just, just God's side of the equation. Let's go through them again. Here's, here's God's opening overture. I have loved you, followed by where is my honor? Where is my reverence? You offer, but, but you offer defiled food on my altar. Notice the, the, the picture that emerges here. I can't regard that. I can't play this game of religious uh, uh, charades. You've hurt me. You've tired me with your many words. He continues, just come back to me. Return to me and, and I will return to you an invitation. You, you have robbed me. You took what wasn't rightfully yours. You robbed me. Your words have been harsh against me. When you put these overtures, when you take Malachi and, and you take the, 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 the dialogue, God's part of the dialogue, and you plug it together, what picture emerges of God here? Well, I'll tell you what doesn't emerge. It's not a picture of stern judgment. and it's a, That's just not the picture. This is a picture of a God who's longing, who's reaching, who's yearning, who's hoping, who's inviting, who's loving. I have loved you. And the response of the people is, loved us. This is Malachi. This is, this is where we've gotten. All the way back from when, when God originally called Abraham and said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will establish my covenant with you and you will have descendants like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. It's going to be awesome. And here we are now. This is where we're at, where God is still yearning. God is still longing. Sure, there was Babylonian captivity. Sure, there was Assyrian assimilation. God said all of that would happen. But, but there's an optimism here. There's a positivity here. God's like, look, even now, even now, people are not interested. They're satisfied. They're, 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 they're absolutely convinced that they're already in the right. You have said, ah, it's useless to serve God. Now look at the people. See if you pick up the common word here. See if you pick it up. Here's the people's half of the response. In what way have we robbed you? In what way have we despised your name? Some of you are already onto it. In what way have we wearied you with our words? In what way have we defiled you? In what way shall we return? In what way have you loved us? Right? What's the word? What's the key word there, by the way? The word is way. Way. In what way have we robbed you? In what way have we... In what way? In what way? In what way? And the only conclusion I could come to after numerous readings of the book of Malachi is that the repeated answer, asking of that question, in what way? In what way? In what way? In what way? These people have completely lost their way. 
It's like the old story that C.D. Brooks told where he was visiting with a, a young sister and, and uh, she had been coming to his evangelistic meetings and this dear sister was listening to the powerful preaching of that man of God and, and she came to Elder Brooks afterwards and said, Mr. Brooks, I, I'm really loving some of what I'm hearing, but I have some questions. And he said, well, sister, what are your questions? He said, well, she, she said, I, I just, I, I can't see anything wrong with this, you know, clubbing and, well, I, and I can't see anything wrong with, with a little alcohol, social drinking and I can't see anything wrong with, you know, just having a boyfriend and, you know, we do a few things. And, and I can't see anything wrong with, with, with the music that I listen to. And Elder Brooks just patiently listened. And then as he tells the story, he said to her, well, sister, that's the problem. You can't see. I can't see anything wrong with. 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 And Elder Brooks says, that's your problem. You can't see. God here says, in what way, or the people say, in what way, in what way, in what way, in what way, in what way. And God's response is is effectively to say, well, I'll tell you what the problem is. You've lost your way. You are a people who have clearly lost your way, which is remarkable because when you go all the way back to Abraham, Abraham never even knew the way. When God originally called Abraham, these are the Abrahamic people. These are the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. When God originally called Abraham, he said, get out of your country from your father's house into a land that I will show you. And the Bible says, and Abraham went. The way was not spelled out explicitly. It wasn't mapped out on Google Maps. He just said, come, come and I'll show you. And he went along. And here now, More than a millennium later, these are people who have the oracles of Moses. They have the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the minor. They they have all this this battery of data, ongoing data on uh, speaking on God's behalf. And they have totally lost their way. In what way? In what way? In what way? In what way? And I want to ask you this question. This sets up the New Testament. Where do you go when you've lost your way spiritually? There's only one place to go when you've lost your way spiritually. You go to him who is the way. John chapter 14, 5 and 6, Thomas said to him, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. Friends, when you have lost your way, when you have lost your way spiritually, like Israel had, like Judah had, when you have lost your way, you can still return to him who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. Several, several Sabbaths ago, I preached on the book of Jeremiah, and I've been absolutely smarting ever since that sermon because I forgot to tell the punchline. It's, been, it's just been, it's been painful to me. It's like, it's like uh, I said, man, how did I get distracted? I, I got distracted on the appeal, and, and at first I thought, well, it won't bother me, but it's just played on my OCD. I forgot to tell you the punchline of the whole sermon. Now, some of you might actually remember this, and if you don't, you can suffer me here. This will be a mild therapy, and if you do remember it, it will really make the point stronger still. The way that I took and sort of wrapped the book of Jeremiah up into a single sermon, which is no mean feat, was to take Jeremiah and summarize it in five words. Five words, and I would imagine that probably nobody in here would remember all of those five words. So let me just help you with the first four, and maybe you'll remember the fifth, okay? Now, the first word is covenant. Now, covenant's a particularly interesting word because it occurs again and again and again in the book of Malachi. Let me just read it for you. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4, that my covenant with Levi may continue. Verse 5, my covenant was with him. Uh, Chapter 
2, verse 8, you have corrupted the covenant with Levi. Chapter 2, verse 10, the covenant with the fathers. Chapter 3, verse 1, the messenger of the covenant. And uh, there is one other that I'm missing. Oh, here it is. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 14, yet she is your companion and the wife of your covenant. Six times the word covenant occurs in the book of Malachi, more than any other of the minor prophets by far. And that stands to reason. Because now that the Old Testament is coming to a close, and we bypass this useless page, and we get to the fulfillment, the ongoing fulfillment of of God's covenant promise, it, it stands to reason that the synaptic bridge between the old and the new would be a continual reminder, the covenant, the covenant, the covenant, the covenant. Well, this is just in keeping with the refrain that God's prophets have been singing all along, including, and especially perhaps Jeremiah, a reminder, an ongoing reminder of the covenant. And then he might remember that the next word to summarize Jeremiah was treacherous. You have dealt treacherously with me. You have dealt treacherously with me and my covenant, which has led to your backsliding. Okay? And now that you have backslid the the fourth of five words, your land will be left desolate. Now, does anybody remember what the fifth word was? The word is return. Thank you, Janine. The word is return. God's, the punchline of the book of Jeremiah is return, and I told you that part, but I forgot this part. If I told, if if I handed out pieces of paper, and I said, write down your favorite verse from the book of Jeremiah, I would bet that this verse that I'm going to share with you right now would be the one that was written down most commonly. Even if you couldn't remember where it was, this is what you would write down. You would write down the passage from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 to 14. Everybody knows, not everybody, most of us know and love this passage, and I forgot to read it. Three or four weeks ago, I forgot to read it, so I'm going to do it now, and you'll see how amazingly it ties in with the sermon. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord. I've emphasized some things here, by the way, stylistically and grammatically, so you'll get the point. You can't miss it. For thus says the Lord. After 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit and perform my good word toward you, and I will cause you to, what's the word? I'll cause you to return to this place. For I know, God says, this is not my plan, this Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem, the death of tens of thousands. This was not my plan. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Let me tell you, they're thoughts of peace. They're not of evil. I want to give you a future. A future, our temple is in ruins, the city is destroyed, and you want, yes, even now. Even now, God is thinking about the future. He's thinking optimistically. He's a forward-thinking person. Right when we get to the book of Malachi, first thing that he says is, I have loved you. God is always on the front foot, always a new opportunity. As the Bible says in the book of Lamentations, His mercies are fresh every morning, always available. You want to start right now? You say, oh yeah, but I've, but I've wasted 20 years. Yeah, but you can start right now. Oh, no, 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 five years, I've not read my Bible or said a prayer for five years. Yeah, but you can start right now. Yeah, 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 no, no, it's, it's not been good for me. I've just been going to church, going through the motions for, for more than a decade. God's like, yeah, yeah, but what about today? We could start right now. There's this like almost childlike enthusiasm where God's like, what about now? I know the thoughts that I think toward you. I know your city's in ruin. I know your temple's destroyed. I know the thoughts that I have toward you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. You will call upon me and you will go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and you will find me and when you search me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. That's going all the way back to the promise of Moses. I will gather you from all the nations, from the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. I w- Just return. Return to me. Return to me. It was the message of Jeremiah. And unsurprisingly, it's the message of Malachi. 
right in the center of the book of Malachi. We read it just a moment ago. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. Look at this. From the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my laws and ordinances. You have not kept them. God could say, away with you. I'm going to start with a new nation. I can't believe after so many years, you would still neglect and dishonor me. Uh, He says, return to me. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The message of Jeremiah was return. And the message of Malachi is return. Even now at this late hour. Sure, it's 11.59 and there's 57 seconds on the clock, you know, or, or three seconds left on the clock. Sure, it's just right at the end. But, but even now, God says, try it now. No, 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 right now. And I'll say just a brief word about this. When you read through the book of Malachi, and this is one of the things I was planning to tease out, but I'm going to invite you to do it yourself. Two of the major areas in which God says, these are areas of return for you, are marriage and money. In Malachi chapter 2, God essentially says to the men, and I'm going to speak to the men here of the church. He says to the men, he says, men, you are dealing treacherously with your wives. Now, I'm going to tell you a little scientific, semi-scientific experiment that I've been doing over the last 15 years of, uh, of counseling and ministry, pastoral and evangelistic. When I sit down with a couple that's going through trials, or even a couple that's not going through trials, it's actually a very fun experiment to do. It will not work on any of you now because I'm going to let you in on the secret. But I'm going to let you know that this is the reality, and I've never seen it contravened a single time. If there's a couple that's going through a little bit of a difficult time, or even if they're not going through a bit of a difficult time, if they are not together, the man and the woman, if they're in separate rooms, and I say to the man, hey, mate, how's life? How's marriage? We just get talking, sort of doing the the, the talk thing, the male thing, and I say, hey, how would you rate your marriage one to ten? I hear a variety of answers. Men seem to like the number seven. I think it makes them feel like they're above average, but they still got room to grow. So I hear a lot of sevens seven, maybe an eight. But here's the amazing thing. And I've done this literally dozens of times. If I'm afforded the opportunity to speak to the woman and the man is not around and ask her the same question, she never, 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 never gives an answer higher than the man gave. If the man says a seven, the woman says a five. If the man says an eight, the woman says a six. I've had a situation recently where the man said a seven and the woman said a one. Now, this is a tragedy. It's a great tragedy because I fear that, that one of the symptoms, of, I, I feel that one of the things that's happening here is that couples are not being honest with one another. And I just want to open my heart to you right now and say this. Women, I want to plead with you to be honest with your husbands about the state of your marriage. I have had numerous situations over the last couple months that have required me to say this. It it doesn't help you in any way to pretend that things are good when they're not good because men tend to be driven by their work, they tend to be driven by their career, they tend to be driven by their profession, and for most men, not all, but for most men, if there's no problems in the home, they just assume that things are pretty good. Women are not that way. If something is not good, they won't, they'll pretend like it's good, it's good. They go through the motions because it's difficult to have those conversations. And what ends up happening is, is a disconnect between the way that the man feels about the marriage and the way that the woman feels about the marriage. And, and this is sustainable for a while, but it will eventually kill your intimacy. It will eventually kill your connectivity. And it could, it could end up in either a complete meltdown or what amounts to basically an economic relationship with the person that just happens to sleep in the same bedroom as you. 
I want to tell you, men and women don't settle for this. And yes, the responsibility is upon the men, but men more and more are unwilling to make that connection. So I want to just give a little shout out here to the ladies of the church. I want you to be honest with your husband about your marriage. If it's, if it's, if it's great, then be honest about it. But if he thinks it's great and you know it's not, then, then, then let him know. Not in a condemnatory or harsh or, or in unsympathetic way, but just let him know, hey, let's say you're concerned. I'll give you some areas of concern. Maybe you're concerned about the way that he's spending money. That's the other major issue that takes place here in Malachi. God's like, look, you've robbed me. You're spending money on anything and everything except for the temple. Anything and everything except for the priests. So, so maybe, ladies, you think, man, I'm not sure I like the way he's spending money, but you wouldn't dare say it. No, say it. Say it in a nice way. Say it in an appropriate way. But you owe it to yourself, to your family, and to your husband to provide a little accountability because for the most part, I, as the pastor, I don't know how your husband's spending his money and probably his mates don't know how he's spending his money. And we get into these little isolated situations where we pretend, and this is one of the great faults of the Christian community, we pretend that everything is fine and is good until there's a catastrophic meltdown. And then we're like, ooh, what happened there? Well, what happened there is that there hadn't been a connection or a, or a real mutuality in their marriage for, for years. And this is simply the manifestation of that. If your husband is spending money in ways that concern you, open your heart to him. Say, hey, listen, if your husband is not going to bed with you with regularity, like, okay, occasionally he stays up a little later, but if it's every night, every night, not going to bed together, let me tell you, there's something wrong there. He didn't miss the honeymoon night, I'll tell you that. No, no, you go to bed, I'll catch you later. No, 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 he was in bed. And you were in bed, and there was a connection there, but if, if it's a regular thing, no, 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 she goes to bed, and then I come in. What's going on? If you feel like your husband is married to a screen of some sort, and I tell you, I wish I could uninvent these ridiculous things because they are destroying the spirituality, not just of the young people. That is certainly happening because they're a generation that has never not known these things. But many of you husbands cannot stop looking at these screens. And it doesn't have to be pornographic or something like that, though it certainly might be. It could just be anything, just anything, just casual surfing. Can't get away from it. If it's not this screen, it's the iPad. If it's not the iPad, it's the computer. If it's not the computer, it's the television. Screen, screen, screen. And if you're a wife sitting there thinking, I wish I had a little more of my husband's time, just face-to-face, talk, walk on the beach, open your heart to him and let him know. I'm not suggesting here that you are pretending, but if you are, and there are just too many situations where people are sailing through, very much like the people of God, pretending that all is well, and God's response here is you are dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth. I want to plead with you on behalf of your marriage. Don't be satisfied with mediocrity. Don't be satisfied with a a, a sort of... I had a situation recently where my wife and I were in a very difficult marriage counseling session, very difficult marriage counseling session, and I told the, individual that I was, the individuals that I was with in that situation this story about how you ask the woman, you ask the man. I had actually done it to them. 7-1. 7-1. And, and just on the spur of the moment, I wasn't planning on doing it. I said to Violetta, I said, uh, Violetta, for example, right now, in total honesty and integrity, how would you rate our marriage? I tell you, man, I was thrilled out of my soul to hear her say, I don't know, a 9 or a 10? I was like, Let me tell you, that's a growth area for us. About five years ago, I heard my wife telling somebody the story of our marriage. I was just overhearing the way she was talking to somebody, one of her girlfriends, in the room. And I thought to myself, well, surely she she must have been married before. 
Because the way she's telling this story is of a deadbeat husband who was not connected, who wasn't intimate, who was kind of doing his own thing. And she's telling this story. And when it was done, when they finally left, I said, Sweet, can I ask you a question about that? Whose marriage were you describing? Am I telling the truth, Violetta? I said, whose marriage were you describing? And she's like, ours. And I became deeply, I was like, our our marriage? That is not our marriage. And I went so far as to say, our marriage has never been lower than an eight. And she's just like, for you. Friends, we had to have the hard conversations. We had to shed the tears. We had to get on our knees. We had to create no phone zones, right? No phone zones at the table. No phone zones on Friday evening. We had to to go in and do the hard work of reestablishing intimacy between us and connectivity with our children. And I want to plead with you, go read the book of Malachi. God says, return to me. And he doesn't say, spend more time on your knees, though I don't think that would hurt. Fascinatingly, the two areas that he draws out, two of the areas that I'm drawing out here, and two of God's primary concerns were your marriage and your money. We think these are, these, are the, these are some of the most spiritual issues you will ever engage. How is your marriage and how do you spend your money? And I want to tell you today, there is hope for the most dry <coughs> and dusty of marriages. If, you, if yours is turned into an economic relationship with a guy or woman who just happens to live in your house, there is hope. I hope it's not that. I hope it's not that, but I've just been around, and it seems to be also part of sort of the Australian shtick to just sort of pretend that all is well, more so certainly than Americans, and just sort of to pretend all is well. But I know that it's not all well with some of you, and I'm pleading with you to be honest with one another and be honest with God. I did something that you might not like. I went back to this statement from Christopher Wright, and I I modernized it. Let me read it to you originally. Throughout this period, Judah, this is how we began. Throughout this period, Judah had no independence, of course. It formed just a small sub-province of the vast Persian Empire, which stretched from the shore of the Aegean Sea to the borders of India and lasted for two centuries. Now, you watch this. In the fifth century, it appears the disillusionment and depression set in again, partly as a result of the apparent failure of the hopes raised by Haggai and Zechariah, and this led to a growing laxity in religious and moral life. Watch. This was challenged by the last of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi, in the 5th century. He was concerned about the slovenliness of the sacrifices, the spread of divorce, and the widespread failure of the people to honor God in practical life. I read this so many times, and when I was reading it just yesterday, the Spirit of God impressed me to change a few words, okay? So without Christopher Wright's permission, I'm going to change a few words, and I'm going to apply it to my Seventh-day Adventist friends, and you tell me if the shoe fits. Watch this. In the 21st century... It appears then disillusionment and depression set in again, partly as a result of the apparent failure of the hopes raised by Daniel and Revelation and the soon return of Jesus. And now we've just sort of settled into a little disillusionment, perhaps even a little bit of despair. Watch this. And this led to a growing laxity in religious and moral life. This was challenged by the last, question mark perhaps, of the prophets Ellen White in the 19th century. She was concerned about the slovenliness of the church, the spread of divorce, and the widespread failure of the people to honor God in practical life. Wasn't this interesting? Here we are, more than 2,000 years removed from Malachi, and the message is just the same for us. The Old Testament ends in really the only place that the Old Testament can end, in desperate need of Jesus, the promised Messiah, because the people have lost their way. And watch this, watch this. Your life and your marriage ends really in the only place it can. The Old Testament ends just like your life must end, in desperate need of Jesus, the Messiah. 
everybody's life has to come to a place. What was it that Jesus said? What was it that he said? He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I want to plead with you to lose your life and find the life, the way, the marriage, the financial responsibility, the intimacy, the connection with your family, and all of those things that come with true godliness. I leave you with this because it launches us into mid-May. It launches us into our next series, which will commence in just a few weeks. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way. Some of us need the way prepared in our hearts, in our marriages, with our children, with our finances. We need the way prepared. I will prepare the, he will prepare, the messenger will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And I love this. Even the messenger of the covenant. And Malachi says with great enthusiasm, behold, he is coming. Friends, he's going to come in the clouds. You need to let him come into your heart. You need to let him come into your checkbook. You need to let him come into your computer web history. You need to let him come into your time. You even need to let him come into your Sabbath. You need to let him come into your bedroom. You need to let him come into your, 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 your dining room table. You need to let Jesus come because him coming to all of those places must come before he comes in the clouds. Or we could find ourselves sitting there with our arms crossed saying, what do you mean? Of course he's coming in the clouds for me. Of course, but of course, but of course. I'm a Christian, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I keep saying, of course, in what way am I not ready for your return? And God's like, no, 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 no. I tried to come to the kitchen table. I tried to come to the checkbook. I tried to come to the web history. I tried to come to the marriage. I tried to come to your relationship with your son. I tried to, co- I tried to come. I remember all those times, and now I have come. Malachi gives us an opportunity to wake up as we, as we head now, headlong into the new series on Messiah, which commences in a couple weeks. We will, we will dig into the New Testament, and as we have seen and will see, the New Testament doesn't make a sliver of sense without the rock-bottom foundation of the Old Testament that shows us that God calls a people, He covenants with a people, He pleads with a people, And then ultimately, he is ignored, rejected, and forsaken by a people. And Jesus comes to make the difference. To be the way. Not just a good counselor, not just a good advisor, but to be a savior. And every one of us in this room needs a savior. Father in heaven. Oh, the book of Malachi. This ships-in-the-night conversation between you and your people. And Father, how many of us are having ships-in-the-night conversations with you? Father in heaven, I pray that there will be a deep penetration of the Spirit into the lives of the Kingscliff Church members and those that are watching. Father, I pray there would be a deep penetration into the way that we're living to the way that we're behaving, to the way that we're spending, to the way that we're speaking, to the way that we're resolving conflict. Father, I pray that there would be a deep penetration of the Spirit and of the righteousness of Christ into our homes and into our hearts. Father, we are a shadow of what we could be. But by your grace, we believe that we could be a moon shining, incandescent with the 
light and warmth of the Son, the Son of Righteousness. Father, the prayer of my heart for every person here and every family here, whether single, married, with children or grandchildren, is that these families and and these little subgroups of the community would become moons that shine to all, with all of their spots and marks and craters and weaknesses and flat sides and Father, but that they would shine in their own wonderful, idiosyncratic way. Shine your light, your goodness, and your grace to the world around. Father, may we shine it to our children. May we shine it to our neighbors. And Father, may we shine it to you. May you see in us a people of whom you can say, Ah, these are my sons and my daughters, in who, through the righteousness of Christ, I am well pleased. Father, we long to be those people. May we not be satisfied with a false religiosity, a charade of godliness, but may you penetrate deep into the uttermost recesses of our hearts and may we truly be your people. We're putting our faith in him who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Let all of God's wandering people say with me, amen.